From Buffalo, Toronto Public Media and WBFO, this is Buffalo What's Next. In the year and one day since a racist gunman attacked the Jefferson Avenue tops, killing 10 black people and wounding three others, there have been many words, but few have been spoken as eloquently and as poignantly as by this hour's guest, Buffalo Poet Laureate Jillian Hainsworth. Let the hopeful healing waters flow. Ushering a rebirth of our sense of self, let the flowing waters remind us of time, current yet fleeting like life itself. Her poem, Water, stands inside the Jefferson Avenue Tops as part of a memorial to the victims of the top shooting. Jillian Hainsworth has been featured on NPR and other national outlets and seems to be on the podium of every major event in the city of Buffalo. Ahead, an hour with Buffalo Poet Laureate Jillian Hainsworth on Buffalo What's Next. First, the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. President Biden says he thinks he will be meeting top congressional leaders at the White House as soon as tomorrow. It's about raising the debt ceiling. NPR's Tamron Keith reports the president met with top House and Senate lawmakers last week to discuss the debt limit and preventing a default. Unless Congress lifts the debt ceiling, the U.S. could be forced to default on its debts as soon as early June. House Republicans say they won't raise the government's borrowing limit without steep spending cuts. And President Biden says he won't negotiate over the full faith and credit of the United States. But negotiations are ongoing on spending cuts and policy changes in an effort to find a way to yes. Biden is supposed to travel to Japan this week for a G7 meeting, and he said Sunday he thinks he will be able to go. That's my plan as it stands now. On the negotiations, Biden said he thinks there is a desire among Republicans to avoid default, and he is optimistic they can reach an agreement. Tamara Keith, NPR News. Biden administration officials say that since Thursday, the Border Patrol has seen a 50 percent decline in the number of migrants apprehended at the southern border. The Biden administration has imposed new immigration rules. In Turkey, government officials have set a runoff presidential election for Sunday, May 28th. That's because none of the candidates garnered more than 50 percent of the vote in yesterday's election. NPR's Peter Kenyon says that includes longtime Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan. It was a surprise, I'd say, to some pundits and opposition party supporters, certainly. They were convinced that after 20 years in power, voters were getting tired of Erdogan. Now, this is a politician who was vilified for a sluggish response to a deadly earthquake in southern Turkey just a few months ago, and he's been presiding over an ailing economy. And yet, once again, he seems to have reached beyond his core base of supporters and attracted enough votes to, apparently at least, avoid losing, if not win outright. NPR's Peter Kenyon reporting. Stocks open mixed this morning as investors wait for news on home building and retail sales. NPR's Scott Horsley reports the Dow Jones Industrial Average slipped about 70 points in early trading. Some of the nation's biggest retailers are set to report earnings this week. Walmart, Target, and Home Depot will offer snapshots of how their customers are coping with high prices. The Commerce Department will report on the nation's overall retail sales tomorrow. We'll also get news this week on how busy home builders are, with average mortgage rates hovering around 6 and a third percent. The high price of cars has people holding on to their old vehicles longer. Researchers say the average passenger car on the road today is 12 and a half years old, an all-time high. Europe's economy is growing a little bit faster than expected, despite fears of a winter energy squeeze. Today, the European Commission raised its forecast for economic growth on the continent to 1.1 percent. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. On Wall Street, the Dow is now down 82 points. You're listening to NPR. 
Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. We need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is Buffalo What's Next. I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. And I'm Thomas O'Neill White. After May 14th, how can we afford not to talk about race? About education, about segregation, about humanity. Since the dawn of this nation, racial violence has existed. The way we have designed our society has a big hand in what occurred in that Topps market. In the suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. We need to make sure that we put more funding in our programs that help prevent gun violence and more money into art. If we're going to have some real healing. We've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truths. How do we remember? How do we remember? How do we remember? How do we remember something we never can forget? Do we pick up all the broken fragments like there's something to collect? Just a bunch of puzzle pieces with no box to look at. In a pain in our hearts that only time can combat, we now know what we know and we know how heavy it can be. Thoughts and prayers rang through the city as tears flowed through the east. Some grappled with loss and fear while others figured out how to eat. That's not a blueprint on what it means to be Buffalo strong to me. But being strong is something that together we can achieve. If we choose to build our strength on a foundation of honesty. And when we choose a posture of love beyond what our eyes can see. We'll suddenly find that we're all playing for the same team. So how do we remember something we never can forget? We build a culture with so much light shining on it that hate simply cannot live. We challenge those who seek to divide us and expel harmful ideas. All to do our part and make sure it never happens again. And so we remember, and we heal, and we inevitably adjust, and we speak life into all the places that still hurt, and we continue to choose love. And we keep our commitment to being good neighbors in both Buffalo and beyond, as our honesty, strength, and collective power redefines what it means to be strong. We remember. Roberta Drury. Margus Morrison. Andre McNeil. Aaron Salter. Geraldine Talley. Celestine Cheney. Hayward Patterson. Catherine Massey. Pearl Young. And Ruth Whitfield. We remember. And this is Buffalo What's Next. Thank you very much for being with us this morning. Of course, all over the weekend, marking May 14th, 2022, uh, a day that will not be forgotten anytime soon here. And of course, uh, we have with us a very special guest this morning, Poet Laureate Jillian Hainsworth. Just heard you, along with Alex Tuck and Dane Smith and Dion Dawkins, producing that piece. How did that go? That was an experience. <laughs> so the Bills came to me, well, the Pagulas, 
team, they came to me and they were like, you know, it's the one year anniversary. We want to do a video. You can say whatever you want, but we just want to see if you're okay with working with okay. us. I'm like, of course. Um, I've worked with them a couple times and it was a really good experience. Um, so I wrote the piece and I sent it over and they were like, okay, we have this idea. Tell us how you feel. Be honest. What if we had some athletes in the video with you right. saying the poetry? And I'm like, I think that's amazing. As long as they're comfortable with it, I'm comfortable with right. it. So we spent like a full day <laughs> just in the, <laughs> in the at Legacy um, Legacy House. Okay. And we just filmed. And I would I would say a line, and the players would repeat it back to me. And we would do it over and over until they had like that poetic type of energy. <laughs> and then we would film them. Um, but they were all so respectful and they all took it so seriously. Like they knew how, how important this was. And Dane um, from the uh, Buffalo Bandits, like I could tell just from his energy that like he's impacted too. Like he feels, you know, he's been in Buffalo for 10 years. Okay. So he feels connected to this community. So they all really wanted to make sure that they were doing it justice and really honoring the words and the message and the community. So it was an amazing experience. You know, Jillian, um, for the last year, of course, you have been called to front and center in a lot of these events, mm-hmm. marking things the day the, uh, you know, Tops reopened was a big day. I mean, there's been a lot of big days along the way here. How has that been for you? Being because you're, you're on one side, you're you're kind of delivering and you're you're speaking on behalf of a community, but you're also getting input from the community as well. How has that been for you? Uh, it's been overwhelming. Um, I always say that it's such a complicated experience for me. Um, so in the last year. I've, I've become a full-time writer. I've, like, reached some of my biggest goals professionally as an artist. And it's kind of been catapulted because of what's been going on right. in our city. So it's hard because it's like I've been working, you know, to get to this point, but I didn't want it because of this. Of course. You know, I don't... I don't want national recognition because I'm writing poems about my own community members being just massacred in our grocery store. So it's hard because there's a part of it that's like, okay, I'm I'm being trusted by my community to speak on our behalf. I'm being welcomed into spaces that I never imagined I would be welcomed into to talk about things that directly impact me and people who look like me and my nephews, my niece. And then on the other hand, it's like, I'm sad (laughs) and I don't want to write about this. Like, I don't want to have to speak about this. So it's complicated, but I'm trying to just take it as my community is trusting me. They are looking to me to say something. And as long as I'm saying something that my community feels is helpful, then I'm doing the right thing. And... I'm constantly talking to people. People walk up to me everywhere I go, and they talk to me about my poetry, and they say that it helps them. I go into schools, and kids who look like me, like, they cry when they see that somebody who looks like them, who comes from the same, like, hood they come Mm -hmm. from, um, is actually doing something 
that's impacting them. And so that keeps me going. I couldn't help but think of you last week. Uh, we did a series of programs. Um, my colleagues went down to Charleston, South Carolina, and they did a, a, a lot of reporting on the um, Mother Emanuel attack and um, tried to build some some comparisons. I think obviously some comparisons uh, between Buffalo and Charleston and talked to some of the different people involved. And Thomas O'Neill White talked with uh, Victoria Hansen, a, a reporter who covered uh, the Mother Emanuel uh, massacre. And she admitted on, on the air, I mean, she had a breakdown. Yeah. And she it, it became too much for her. How about for you? Uh, how how have you been able to, to get through some of this? Because I can only imagine what it's been like sometimes. Yeah, I mean, I have probably... So traditionally, I'm like this very tough-skinned person. Okay. Like, I'm not very emotional. Um, not very... Like, I don't really cry too much. Like, I have to have a real reason. And when people cry around me... My background is in counseling, so I'm very good at giving people their space, but I don't. it doesn't impact me. So if you're crying in front of me, it doesn't necessarily make me cry too. Right. But I'm, I can give you your space. I've cried more in the last year than I ever have in my life. Really? Um, Just feeling the weight of it and the, the heaviness, the pressure, just feeling like, I don't know what I'm doing. Like, I don't know. <laughs> Every single day, I have no idea what I'm doing. I open my mouth. I don't know if I'm saying the right thing. I don't know if I'm helping. I don't know if I'm just beating a dead horse and just saying the same thing over and over. Like, I have no idea. So it's been hard. I've been just really trying to figure out a way to cope and not compartmentalize because I think it's second nature to just say, okay, I'm going to put my own feelings about this on a shelf so I can help so I can get to work, so I can write, so I can pass out food, hand out books. Like, I have to do service. Um, but I'm trying to learn how to multitask when it comes to addressing how I feel and helping out other people. But I, I've seen a lot in the last year, you know, between yes. here and, and being in Chautauqua when Salman Rushdie no, was stabbed. I forgot all and, about that, yes. Yeah, so I'm just like, what is happening around me? Like, what is what is this? But... I'm leaning into my faith and um, uh, Pastor Charles uh, McCarley from um, Tabernacle of Praise. He's always checking on me and meeting up with me and just making sure that, you know, that I have some sort of direction and that I don't lose that sense of purpose. Um, and my parents and my friends, everybody's just constantly like, did you eat today? Do you need me to go get you some groceries? Do you need me to come clean your kitchen? Just like really, really trying to help me out with like just the basic tasks that can really feel like too much when I'm just really impacted by everything. It's great to hear that, you know, your family's gathered around your faith is helpful in terms of leaning on it. But what about the writing? Does the writing help process some of that too? Yeah. The writing does help. I have a lot of poems that I've written in the past year that I don't know if I'll ever share. Um, poems that I just, they're just very raw and very real about how I'm personally feeling. Um, so sometimes I need to just get it out. And then sometimes writing a piece, knowing that I'm going to get to stand up in front of my own community and say it to them is helpful because I know that the same way I'm feeling some relief from writing this, you're going to feel some relief from hearing it. So it, it is very helpful. Um, but I'm also like constantly looking for other ways outside of writing to to help. Because now that it's my profession too, it's like 
okay, now I'm always writing. Like, right. So I'm like, okay, what else can I do? Um, so really diving into like my literacy work, that's helpful. Really helpful. Um, I want to just, I, I love talking to artists about their process. So yeah. when you say you're always writing, I mean, are, do you have set, set aside time? Do you just, or when, when the inspiration's there or when, or when you actually have time? Because <laughs> I know you get pretty busy. Um, so I give myself deadlines. Um, so I do a lot of commission poetry now um, for organizations and companies and people. They'll hire me to write poems for all kinds of events, um, commencements. And like, I don't, I can't even list it all. So I put myself on deadlines for those. Okay. So I'll say, okay, I always like to send my poetry in at least a week before I'm going to have to say it. So I might be writing overnight. I might write during the day. I might write in the sauna at the gym, just whenever it comes to me. Okay. But I do put myself on a deadline. And if I'm approaching that deadline and nothing has come to me, then I'll say, okay, today I'm writing and I will put my phone on do not disturb and sit down and I always start by reading um, because when I can't think of anything I'll I'll read something and then something will start to come to me um, so reading is like the most important part of my process and I think the more you read the better you write so that's the biggest part of the process you're continuing to intrigue me about your process more I want to ask you some more <laughs> things about that but let's take a let's take a, a short break we're with uh, Jillian Hainsworth this is Buffalo what's next on WBFO this past Friday the Buffalo Public School District in conjunction with Bosses and ourselves here at Buffalo Toronto Public Media hosted an educational day of healing and restoration for school-age students the event featured a virtual healing circle book readings and uplifting messages from students from our community. And now, a letter on behalf of the Emerson School of Hospitality student body, as read that day by Elena Littleton. Elena Littleton, I'm a senior at Emerson, and I have a letter. Dear family and friends of our community, we are still hurting from the horrific event that happened on May 14th, 2022. This changed our lives forever. One thing that we have gotten from this tragedy is how precious life is and how easily someone can steal it. We sadly now realize the preciousness of life and that causes fear. We grieve with you as you grieve the loss of mothers, fathers, aunts, uncles, brothers, sisters, family, and friends. We feel your pain as you are trying to heal your broken hearts. You feel our pain as we have lost our friend, grandmother figure, mother figure, and teacher we had in Miss Young. We want you to know that we're going through this together. We're with you. We're trying to heal as a school, and we now, and we know you're trying to heal as a community. Our junior at Emerson School of Hospitality, Leighton Palmer, who currently works at Tops on Jefferson, wrote that though the tragedy was terrible, I never let go of my aspirations of producing music. Music is a therapy. Eventually, Leighton wants to tell stories or help create stories that motivate people to be the best versions of themselves. It's not easy getting through this, but our school is really trying. Leighton also wrote, people will try to knock us down, but like glue, the black community has held it together. As students, we are open to more brave conversations about race and how to make things better. What can we do as students to talk about why this is happening and what we can do to make things better? We don't want this to happen ever again. This event was tragic and has changed our community forever. It's changed how we think and behave. This tragedy brought out fear and a sense of not being safe anywhere we go in public. 
This will take a long time for us to let our guard down in public places, and we can imagine that this will be a huge challenge for you too. At school, we have addressed healing. Last year, we remembered the victims with a moment of silence. Last year, we created a memory board for Miss Young. And we took many days to grieve, share, and have conversations. This year, we will remember all the victims with a moment of silence. We will have a poem read by Jillian Hainsworth, the Buffalo poet. We're going to share memories about Miss Young. We'll be wearing pearls this week, and we'll be baking special cookies in her memory. Also, we're going to unveil a plaque with a picture of Miss Young to celebrate and remember her life. And many of those who lost their lives on May 14th from the poet Jillian Hangsworth, let the beauty of the unknown offer comfort and hope within water there will always be life. Sincerely, the Emerson School of Hospitality students and staff. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. And back on Buffalo What's Next with Jillian Hainsworth, Buffalo Poet Laureate. Jillian, you heard that... Uh, Letter read by Elena Littleton of Emerson School of Hospitality. Mentioned you a couple of times in there as well. Uh, just curious, just your reactions as you're listening. Yeah, um, that was powerful. To hear that letter come from a student's voice was powerful. Um, a couple of things that stuck out to me was uh, the people tried to knock us down, but like glue the black community, uh, they held it together. And that just reminds me of the conversations that I had last year about this like ability for black communities to survive and this like we like it's not optional you know if we have to hold it together we have to survive we have to pr push through we have to heal even in some cases expecting that healing to happen at a pace that works so that we can we can keep living and we can keep providing and figure out how to let our guard down, like she said in the letter, let our guard down in public places. Um, so that's powerful because we have been stuck in survival mode for a very long time. And in Buffalo, you know, it's been 30 plus years documented that, that the black community has gone without experiencing any economic growth, um, no booms in home ownership, no boom in education like we're just surviving and I'm proud to be from a, a people who are able to survive the worst but I know that my people deserve to not have to survive and to really be able to consider what thriving looks like to imagine what that could mean for us um so that was really powerful hearing them you know, quote my poetry, that's always, like, <laughs> surreal for me um, because I never really thought that I'd ever say anything that was worth quoting, that was worth people even remembering. And the fact that they were talking about Pearl Young, um, Pearl Young babysat my mom when she was oh a kid. So it's just very, you know, like, but Buffalo is, it's a medium-sized city, but it's a small community, 
um, on the east side, and, and we're all connected somehow. So to hear them talk about her and talk about wearing pearls and really honoring her, like that's, that's beautiful. Speaking of quoting, I've quoted you a couple of times. You may not even recall having this conversation. It happened on May 15th of last year. Um, you said to me, and I, I remember it very well because you were very definitive, you said, all of the art from Buffalo comes from the east side. Mm-hmm. And I've thought of it many times along the way over this last year, and I'm, I still haven't proven you wrong. Um, and more and more everywhere I turn, I find more of just that art. And just listening as best I could to this, this letter, are you seeing, can you judge in some way the sense that people are finding their way to literature, perhaps to writing, to the arts, to try to express what's, what's going on inside that community? From my experience, yes. Going into schools over the last year, and I've had, I've done keynotes, and after my keynotes, I almost always have a Q&A. And I've had kids ask me, like, what, what book should I read? Like, what, like, kids, high schoolers, like, what can I do? How can I become more aware? Um, the fact that people are leaning into literature is so impactful and so important because a lot of what's happening is not new. You know, what's happening in our community, it's not new. The strategies that we've created as a people to survive it, they're not new. Um, so really taking some time to dive into the thoughts of, of writers who, who are working on the front lines and who are going into schools and educating people about um, being anti-racist and who's working with youth about how to be leaders and how to use your voice, how to identify your voice, um, being able to recommend books is powerful. But I've also had more and more students want to write. I've had students send me poetry about everything from cats to (laughs) May 14th, everywhere from second graders to college students, just saying, "I, I need to figure out a way to express myself. So can you just read this and tell me what you think about it? Um, and I'm always so honored when when students come to me with their writing because I know how it was to be in high school. Like, I <laughs> yeah, didn't oh, yeah. want anybody's opinion on anything. Right. Um, so <laughs> to be in, in this position and to have students walk up to me at events and say, like, I heard you speak at my school and I heard you were going to be here. So I wanted to come and hear you or I wanted to come and, and get some books or where can I buy your book? Anytime like, a student asks me where they can buy my book, I'm like, tell me Tell me your address and I will send it to you. You don't have to buy it. I'll send you a copy because it's just like I know how much power is in opening a book. It's a new world. It's new perspectives and new ideas and new strategies, new art. So to be able to be a little piece of that for some of these students is everything to me. But I do see a lot more people leaning on the arts to cope, to understand, to heal, and to help other people understand how they feel. What books do you recommend? I'm curious. Um, of course, How to Be a Young Anti-Racist is an amazing book. Um, the, Hate, the Hate They Give by Angie Thomas is a book I always recommend. And, and that one's hard because you want the happy ending. And I'm not going to give a spoiler if anyone <laughs> didn't read it. Um, but it's, it's a powerful book. Um, I always recommend poetry books. I recommend 
it is hard to find books by Celeste Tisdale, but I recommend Celeste Tisdale's writings and um, Lucille Clifton, writers from right here in this community. Um, there are so many new books that we're getting now. Mark Talley just had a book come out, um, The Day the Devil Came to Town. Yeah, May 14th, The Day the Devil Came to Town. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I recommend books by, by local authors and... Oh, I just have I have like a running list of books that I always just like pull out and I'm like, what are you interested in? Okay, <laughs> I'm gonna say this title right here, <laughs> and they're not all at the top of my head right now. Sure, but, sure, no. But... Um, I always follow up when I speak at conferences with a book list. I send it to the organizer. Like, here are some books for your teachers. Here's some books for your kids. Um, so we can move beyond diversity, equity, and inclusion to anti-racism and to really figuring out how to build a culture that works for everybody. Um, so, yeah, always always give book recommendations. How about for you? What were the books that had that kind of uh, special meeting for you at a certain time or at certain times of your life? Because sometimes they're, they come to you when you're 12. Sometimes they come to you when you're maybe a little older than that. Yeah, I'm going to give two books, and they're very, very different books. I'm going to give The New Jim Crow. I read that book probably every two years, two, three years. Um just because it really helps me recenter my understanding of the way the system works and the way it impacts people who look like me in the way historically, like laws that were made a long time ago that we think don't apply anymore, the way they are still kind of written into our legislation and just kind of, it just regrounds me in understanding the purpose and the why and the work. And then on the other hand, there's a book by Issa Rae <laughs> And it's called The Diary of an Awkward Black Girl. And that book was very powerful for me when I first read it because I've always felt like the girl who is just a little bit different, you know, (laughs) the girl who would rather read a book than, you know, talk about boys as a kid. The girl who just always like when I was I was a kid and I wrote a story about the death penalty like as a child. And it's very intense, like it's a little too much for a kid, but. (laughs) <laughs> I have always been that way. So it just made me feel way more comfortable about being awkward and embracing who I am as a black girl and not feeling like I have to present myself a certain way. I know we're going know. back a few Let's years about back. the death. Let's we're go going back. about the death penalty. But the uh, young girl writes about the death penalty. What was she writing? So the book was called Death to the Death Penalty. I was anti-death penalty from a very young age. <laughs> um, so did you, about, did you, from a young age, did you have an understanding of the racial implications of it? I did. Really? So it was about a, a black man who was given the death penalty and his daughter was trying to organize to get that sentence eradicated so that he wouldn't um, be put to death and she she fought and fought and she got all this attention and all this support and he still ended up getting the death penalty. Mm. Um, and I think I was in, when I first started writing that, I was probably in like the eighth grade. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then when I was in maybe the ninth grade, I started sending it to publishers. <laughs> it was like 20 pages long. Everybody was like, who are you? Like, what is this? Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know why I was like, somebody's going to publish this. Um, I'm sending it to, like, the top publishers in the country. And they're just like, we don't even accept solicitation. So why are you sending us your 20-page story about the death penalty? Um, but, yeah, I've always kind of had this urge to understand 
why some people are treated differently. I've always had this like passion for helping other people understand that. And I think just growing up the way you do, like when you grow up and you're, when you grow up black, like you're, the talk for us is not the birds and the bees. It's the police. It's understanding who you are, understanding what you look like. Your ice has to be colder. Like you have to try harder. You have to be smarter just to get the same opportunities. So having that talk at a really young age with my my mom just kind of made me think like, well, why? Like, what if I don't want cold ice? Like, why does my ice have to be colder? That's that's not fair. Um, And it really just made me dive deeper into why things are the way they are. You also, back to literacy, yesterday over uh, Next to Tops, you had a a pop-up uh, bookstore. Yeah. And you were very busy. I saw you there. You were you were scrambling around, so I didn't stop by to say hi. But uh, how, how, we just talk about maybe going go into the background of, of doing that and how it went. Yeah. So um, a few weeks ago, I was trying to think of a way to be of service on the 14th without having to be in front of everybody. Um, most people don't know this about me, but I am introverted, (laughs) Um, (laughs) so I'm like, what can I do that would not require a microphone to be in my hand? Um, So I reached out to uh, Stephanie Pete and her her mom, Miss Lisa, they own Second Chapter Bookstore, and I was like, you know, I'm thinking about just trying to figure out a way to just give some books to the community. I've had a lot of book donations come in since I've been doing my little library box project around the east side. So I had so many new books. I'm like, let's just try to figure out a way to give these books out. So they were like, yep, tell us what you need, and we're we're in. So we got a tent, and we just set up a little store, and we had a library box that kids were able to stop by and help paint, and that will be the second chapter bookstore library box. Mm. Um, and, yeah, we're just, we gave out um, a little over 300 books, Um, of all different reading levels. We had some local authors and a lot of, like, world-renowned authors and books. Um, And we had uh, volunteers came from the Bills. They contacted me, like, what do you need? And I was like, I need some bags. I want people to be able to feel like they're shopping. So I need some bags. So they were like, say less. (laughs) And they (laughs) gave me some bags, um... Uh, my friend Kelsey and Maddie Glab, who works for the Bills, they came and volunteered. And um, another gentleman who works for the Bills, he came and he did the paint table, which was a job like nobody really wanted. <laughs> <laughs> so so I was really grateful for that. Um, my mom came and helped out, even though it was Mother's Day. Wow. Um, so, yeah, it was it was powerful. We got all the books were given out and everybody's like, when are you going to do this again? So we're going to have to strategize, but we're going to have to do it again. And, uh, you know, we did talk about how your position that you've kind of been thrust upon here in the last year, uh, how it cha- challenging it can be. Does um, an event like that, though, does that boost you a little bit? It does. It boosts me, but it also is very grounding for me because when I became the Poet Laureate, I feel like a lot of people were like, wow, that's a that's a fancy title. Like, that's so cool. That's an honor. And to me, I needed to be a service role. Like any role that you hold in this city, whether you are an elected official or the poet laureate, you are of service to the community. So 
I like to do things like that because it takes away me sitting on a stage. It takes away the spotlight, the microphone, and it's just pure service. It's me helping people who may have no idea who I am pick out books for their grandkids, you know, Mm -hmm. or talking and hugging a, a woman who's emotional and saying, you know, will this make you feel better coming over here and and picking out some books, you know, talking to a teenager, like, what artist do you like? And he's like, Kendrick Lamar. And I'm like, oh, we have a Kendrick Lamar book right here. Do you want it? You know, um, some kids came yesterday and was like, I, do you think I can pick out some books for my mom? Because I wasn't able to get her a Mother's Day present. And it's like, the only, you can as long as you pick out a book for yourself too. You know, so being able to just be with my own community and be of service like that is what this is all supposed to be about so it was necessary like i i needed that yesterday jillian hainsworth is our guest on buffalo what's next we have more to come stay with us this is wbfo next up i have a spoken word artist joy perry and you are from school i'm from performing arts performing arts and can you share a little bit about what you're going to have prepared for us today um, I will be doing Let America Be America Again from Langston Hughes. Let America be America again. Let it be the dream it used to be. Let it be the pioneer on the plane seeking a home where he himself is free. America was never America to me. Let America be the dream the dreamers dreamed. Let it be that great strong land of love where never kings contrive nor tyrants scheme. That any man be crushed by one above. It was never America to me. Oh, let my land be the land where liberty is crowned with no false patriotic wrath. But opportunity is real and life is free. Equality's in the air we breathe. There's never been equality for me, nor freedom in this homeland after free. Say, who are you that mumbles in the dark? And who are you that draws your veil across the stars? I am the poor white fool and pushed apart. I am the Negro bearing slavery scars. I am the red man driven from his land. I am the immigrant clutching the hope I seek and finding the same old stupid plan of doggy dog of might crush the weak. I am that young man full of strength and hope tangled in that ancient endless chain of profit, power, gain, of grab the land, of grab the gold, of grab the ways of satisfying need, of work the men, of take the pay, of owning everything for one's own greed. I am the farmer bondsman to the soil. I am the worker sold to the machine. I am the Negro servant to you all. I am the people, humble, hungry, mean. Hungry yet, despite the dream. Beaten yet today, oh pioneers. I am the man that never got ahead. The poorest worker bartered for the years yet, I am the one who dreamt our basic dream in an old world bustle a surf of kings who dreamt a dream so strong, so brave, so true, that even yet it's mighty daring scenes in every brick and stone and every furrow turned that has made America the land it has become. 
oh, I am the man who sold those early seas in search of what I meant to be my home. For I have left dark Ireland's shores and Poland's plain and England's grassy lea and torn from black Africa's strand I came to build the homeland of the free. <laughs> the, the free? Who said the free? <laughs> not me. Surely not me. The millions on relief today? The millions shot down when we strike? The millions who have nothing for our pay? For all the dreams we dreamed, all the hopes we held, and all the flags we hung, all the songs we sung. The millions who have nothing for our pay except the dream that's almost dead today. Oh, let America be America again, the land that never has been yet. And yet must be the land where every man is free, the land that's mine, the poor man's, Indians, Negroes, me, who made America, whose sweat and blood, whose faith and pain, whose sand at the foundry, whose plow in the rain, must bring back our mighty dream again. Sure. Call me any ugly name you choose. The still of freedom does not stain from those who live like leeches off the people's lives. We must take back our land, America. Oh yes, say it plain. America was never America to me. And yes, I swear this oath, America will be out of the rack and ruin of our gangs to death. The rape and rot of graft and stealth and lies. We, the people, must redeem the land, the rivers, the plants, the mimes, the mountains, and the endless plains. All, all the stretch of our great green states and make America again. Thank you. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. And uh, back on Buffalo What's Next, and we just got to hear Joy Perry of uh, the Buffalo Academy for Visual and Performing Arts. And your eyes lit up when you heard uh, the Performing <laughs> Arts. You're a, you're a proud graduate, huh? Yeah, class of 2010. Wow. Um, yeah, shout Just out to PA. <laughs> really? I feel old. I turned 30 last year. And oh the my first goodness. day of being 30, my knees cracked. And I'm like, what is happening? <laughs> More <laughs> no, to come but, on that one, Jillian. Trust my me. dad went to City Honors. So I oh. have to say that performance we just heard, a City Honors student could never. I just had to say that for my dad. Wow. We have a me and my dad have a rivalry. Rivalry, what's what's best, huh? Yeah, City Honors versus Performing Arts. Performing Arts always wins in my book. You know, I will I will uh, just not get involved in that discussion and just, just encourage it along. Uh, you know, so many other things I wanted to talk about here. But one thing I did want to get into and is what we've seen and heard from the media in the last year mm-hmm. when it comes to the story of the east side of Buffalo. Give me some of your impressions on this because I'm, I'm sure you have some deep thoughts. Yeah. I mean, okay, so last year... May 15th, I go out to Jefferson, and I saw more people on Jefferson than I've ever seen in my life. And most of them were people from the media all over the world. One conversation I will never forget is a journalist from a, a French 
publication came up to me and he said, this is horrible that what's, what's going on here. And I'm like, yeah, it is. <laughs> like, yeah. And he goes, so are you guys going to form a militia? And I'm just like, what? <laughs> mm. Huh? I was like, look around you. What, what do you see happening right now? I pointed to a lady and I said, what is she doing? And he was like, she's crying. She's holding, holding on to someone, hugging someone. And I turned somewhere else and I said, what is he doing? He's like, he's picking up trash. You know, people immediately started consoling each other and figuring out what they can do, whether it's come out with a garbage bag and pick up garbage or walk up to a group of people handing out food and say, do you need help? You know, people immediately started trying to figure out a way to uplift and support each other. And we had media, the media coming out and and trying to build a different narrative completely different from what they were actually seeing happening around them. Um, And then, of course, we knew that we'd only be a story for so long. You know, Uvalde happened, and in most of the media here, they had to leave and go there. It was just a few days later. It was a few days later. Um, So I think it's, it's sad that these stories are so fleeting, that it's like we're a news cycle. We're going to get a few news cycles, and then we got to move on to something else. What I can say is I do think that a lot of our local media, um, this station, um, and I I won't name stations, but a lot of our local media um, have been very respectful and have really taken the lead of the people that the community have identified as voices and leaders for us and really followed our lead. Like, what, what do you think we need to talk about? What do you think we need to report on? I have more relationships with journalists and reporters than I've ever had. And they'll just text me like, is there anything happening that we are not doing our due diligence at reporting on? So I really, really respect that. And I appreciate that. But for the ones that have just been treating May 14th like a story, and in some ways they've lost the humanity in it, They've lost the, fa- the fact that when you leave, we're still, we still have to be here. And they're not asking the, the hard questions. They're not asking the right questions, you know? A lot of news outlets made space for the president and the governor to say thoughts and prayers, but they didn't ask, what are you going to do? And they didn't keep asking, and they didn't put that pressure on them. Like, what are you going to do? This is your, these are your constituents. Like, your constituents have lost their lives what are you going to do? Um, so I wish we would have seen more of that. I wish we would have seen more accountability. You know, it the story can't always... You need to hear from our voices. You need to hear from the community. But the same questions that we have, we need you to go hard asking those questions. When things were happening around May 14th that were impacting the city, like redistricting and things like that, we needed our local media to be like, hold on, (laughs) why do you think now is a good time to do this? What are you doing? Do you know that half your community is standing in line for a bag of food on Jefferson? Like, what is this, you know? So when it comes to the humanity of the community, I think a lot of media outlets have done a good job at, at following our lead. But when it comes to asking the questions that led to this, asking the questions that made it easy for somebody to identify where all the black people are, and really digging into the history of that, talking to Henry Lewis Taylor and saying, like, how, in what ways 
was our community kind of designed for this, for this to happen? In what ways was this community a sitting duck waiting for this to happen? Um, those are the questions that we need the media to really ask and ask with, with intention. Ask like you are not going to stop asking until you get an answer. Um, because we don't need any more thoughts and prayers. We don't need any more condolences, any more speeches. I don't want to hear any more politicians say, never again, this is the last time. How many times are you going to say that? How many last times can we have? So I, I, I do want to see more pressure from the media on the people that can answer these questions and continue to give a platform to the people from the community that are speaking up for us and, and the families that, that want to talk and the families that don't, like, leave them alone. You know, don't don't pressure the families that don't want to talk. Um, so luckily I have had these conversations with a lot of reporters, um, but I do think that playing, using kid gloves on the politicians, like, we can't keep doing that. You know, I don't I don't need to hear Joe Biden say, I'm so sorry. I don't want this to ever happen again anymore. I don't even care. I don't want to hear that. A lot of us don't want to hear that. Kathy Hoko, we don't want to hear that. <laughs> we want to know what you're going to do and not just what you're going to do to make sure people eat while the grocery store is closed. But what are you going to do about the fact that they were starving on May 13th of 2022 and that they're still starving on May 15th of 2023. What are you going to do about that? So that's what we need. Jillian Hainsworth, Buffalo Poet Laureate, with us here for another 10 minutes on Buffalo, What's Next? Very powerful, Jillian. Is that what you're hearing from your community? Is yeah. that you're hearing that very same? Yeah, a lot of people are like, we don't want any more thoughts and prayers. Like, we've been saying, hey, like, look what's happening over here for years, for years. We've been saying, it's it's crazy that we only have one grocery store. Like, hey, do y'all see what's, what's going on over here? Like, we've been saying that for for years, as long as I can remember. Um, and again, every issue that, that we dealt with in the wake of 514 was an exacerbated issue that already existed. Right. None of it was new. So, and the fact that a lot of these, that nothing's changed. The fact that nothing is different today as far as legislation, as far as policy, city ordinance, as far as food access, like, it's still a food apartheid on the east side. And they're not even calling it that. They're calling it a food desert. It's not. So, yeah, that's that's very frustrating for a lot of people in the community. There's been a lot of talk about investing money, state money, um, maybe a little bit less on the local county level. Mm-hmm. In your again, I'm just hearing what you just said, so I, I assume I already know the answer that you're not there may be this talk about this money and it may be getting spent in some regard, but for you and for most people, there's no concrete it. proof of it. Yeah. There's no concrete proof and a lot of times I think they put the onus on nonprofit leaders, right? They say we're gonna put together this commission of nonprofit leaders from the east side. And we're going to let them determine how to disperse the money, how to how to spend the money. They're going to decide who to write the checks to. And even those people are sometimes very disconnected from the lady who sits on her porch on Landon every day and watch the kids get on and off the bus. 
You know what I mean? Like, even then, there's still a disconnect. So I'm not, I don't know what the best strategy is to make sure that the people on the ground, the people in the community feel the effects of this money. Um, I have ideas. I think land trusts, more land trusts, that's a, a valid way, like, letting people feel ownership and have ownership. I don't know if I'll ever own a house in Buffalo. Like, I don't in general, but especially in my own in my own city because of how hard it is to to own property, to even be able to find property that's that's worth buying. Right. Um so land trust, let the community have some ownership over the land. You know, let us make it easier for us to to build grocery stores. There are a lot of plots of land on the east side that are owned by people who don't live here, who've never lived here, who are sitting on it, waiting to sell it to a developer. That should not be okay. Like, that shouldn't be allowed. You should not be able to just own a plot of land on Thatcher Avenue that you're not going to do anything with. Like, it's not helpful to our community. Um, So I think figuring out ways to put the community, to give them some ownership over the land, um, more educational opportunities, um, workforce development. I know we have the Northland Workforce Center, but we need to expand workforce development. We need to start addressing poverty. Um, we need to start to start to usher our community out of this survival state where it's like, I just need to make sure I can put food on the table. I need to make sure I can pay my utilities. I need to make sure I can make that car note payment. And we need to move out of that. Um, but it's just so ingrained into the culture here in Buffalo when it comes to how black people have historically had to make their way here um, that I don't know the strategy. But I know that we have people who do know strategies. We have Henry Lewis Taylor. We have community organizers who are spending as much time as I do performing. They spend that same amount of time researching and strategizing. And those are the people that we need to hear from. Not just the people with the big titles or the people over the biggest organizations or the elected officials, like the people who the old lady calls when she doesn't have any groceries, the people who pays for the elders in their neighborhood to get their lawns mowed. Those are the people we need to talk to and figure out from your experience, what do we need? Where do we need to spend this money? Um, And I think we need a very detailed document of how this money is being spent we need to know we, we we're owed that um because you can tell me all day i'm investing 50 million in the east side but when there is still a pothole right before a speed hump and then another one right after it when it's still kids that have to walk in the street because the sidewalks are cracked up when it's still kids who don't even have money to pay their school lunch like where's the money you know since we've kind of breached into politics just a little bit here, I'm mm-hmm. just I'm very curious about this because there are I believe what two council races that the the incumbent is not running, so they're mm-hmm. wide open, and I know there's a challenge in a couple of the other districts as well, which is unusual for Buffalo. Yeah, are you hearing though? Is it is that gaining any traction? Those those races? I mean, you know, for me, you know. A little bit of a political nerd, I guess, you know, I'm interested in it, but I'm also interested in to see if there's a real debate emerging 
at the level that a council race should be held, which is a, a neighborhood level. Do you, mm-hmm. do you sense any of that or not really? In in some aspects, yes. I feel like a lot of the conversation is like, we need somebody else. Like, And not just, you know, I don't like the person that's in office, but like, we need a new set of ideas. We need some new strategies. Um, a lot of regular people who are like, you know what, maybe I'll run for common council one day. Like, I'll do it. Fine. Like, give give it here. I'm just going to do it. <laughs> right. um, <laughs> um, so that's been cool. But I think um, primarily in, in Maston District and in Ellicott District, that's kind of where the most community buzz right now is But happening. it is there. It is there. It is there. Um, and I'm hoping that it, it increases because we know that we don't have a good voter turnout rate for local elections here. So I'm hoping that more and more people will start to see you know, the average person who looks like them running and be like, if they're running, then the least I can do is go vote. <laughs> like, um, But even then, you know, it's hard to convince people that it matters when right. when nothing has changed for so long. So I'm, I'm hoping that it can be a new day here and that we'll have new leaders and we'll have some women in there and we'll have some more diversity and more challenging voices. Um, and I know we will. Just because I know so many people who are running and these people will, they won't stop. They won't stop. And that, that's important. They're not going to say like, even if they don't win in this election, they're not going to be like, well, I tried. <laughs> like, No, they're going to keep doing the work and they have been doing the work. Um, so that's powerful. You know, I, I have. I appreciate being on radio because then people don't have to see my Facebook. Boy, <laughs> if they could have seen your the smile on your face when you started talking about that. Yeah, yeah. That's a sign of hope and optimism. That, yeah, because um, I've seen them. I've been out there with them, you know, doing the work, doing the real work. And for a lot of people, they're not trying to play the political game. They're trying to help. So they just want to do something meaningful. And I, that gives me hope. That is uh, excellent. Excellent. Uh, Jillian, um, they can always find you, of course, on your website. You're always out there. You're ready to go all the time, right? Always, always. <laughs> <laughs> Jillian Hainsworth uh, is our guest here. We've got one more minute to go here before we say goodbye. So you, I, I'm glad we got to see you smile because we've had a real serious conversation here, but it's been an enlightening one as well. Um, what's next? I know you got an event uh, coming up tomorrow that you're going to be part of, right? Yep. I'll be um, with the Olmstead Parks Conservancy tomorrow evening um, at the Buffalo History Museum for a radical conversation around green space and and race and how those things intersect. Um, parks are supposed to be the picture of democracy. It's open to everybody equally, um, but is that really what we're seeing happen? Um, are we really seeing people who are black and brown have access to fresh air, fresh water, green space? Um, and what implications do that does that mean for our communities? So I'll be the MC and I'll be performing a piece. Um, so a new piece. I've performed it once, okay. maybe a year ago. Okay. Um, it's called "Paint My People Green." Um, so yeah, it'll be new to most people because I've only done it a couple times. That's not the one you did at that event for the Olmstead Parks, where I met I you. I did. Okay. Yeah. yeah oh, yeah. very good. So I have heard it. Actually, I have a recording <laughs> of it. it. <laughs> <laughs> I can. I'm a spoiler alert on that one. <laughs> Jillian Hainsworth is always. Thank you very much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Jillian Hainsworth is the poet laureate for Buffalo, and she is our guest this morning on Buffalo. What's next? This is WBFO. 
and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOLN Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown, your NPR station.